0: Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host Christian Peterson. For many Muslim communities, particular religious identities were formulated or hardened within colonial realities. These types of cultural encounters were structural for the various Muslim tribes in the southern Philippine islands of Mindanao and Sulu during the turn of the 20th century. In Making Moro's Imperial Historicism and American Military Rule in the Philippine's Muslim South, published with Northern Illinois University Press in 2012, Michael Hawkins demonstrates the dramatic consequences of this short historical moment for Filipino Muslims. Between 1899 and 1913, professional ethnographers, and military officers worked to represent Filipino Muslims as noble, primitive warriors. Various communal identities were fused into a singular construction, the Moro. Moro identity was constructed in the American imagination to serve colonial, civilizing agendas. Ultimately, this period served as a crucial moment for Filipino Muslim identity and is looked back upon with nostalgia. In our conversation, we discussed imperial historicism, colonial legitimacy, taxonomy and classification, capitalism, slavery in American moral society, communal remembrance, frontiers, and Islamic authenticity. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Hawkins. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Hawkins about his great new book, Making Moros, Imperial Historicism and American Military Rule in Philippines Muslim South. Thanks for joining me, Mike. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it was really a, a pleasure to read your book. Um, you've, you've really done a great job here and uh, exploring a really interesting history, which I think not a lot of people are uh, are knowledgeable of, and uh, you do it in a very clear and concise way. So, so thank you for for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. It's great um, to hear. As is tradition with the with the new books interviews, um, before we delve into uh, the content and some of the things you're exploring, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a background on uh, your training uh, people that might've been influential either in, uh, the topics you explore or your approaches and specifically what, what brought you to the subjects you work on to today?
1: Great. Yeah, sure. I, uh, it was kind of funny. Uh, Mindanao had always seemed to be the apparent choice, just one I, I couldn't see for some reason. I had uh, been really fortunate when I was younger to live in the Philippines for several years. And, um, Learned the languages and, and just kind of became part of it. And so when I got back uh, in my master's program, in the early part of my PhD program, I'd been much more interested in religious movements in Luzon and uh, nationalist movements in the post colonial era and these kinds of things. And I had always known of Mindanao. I mean, I'd been there a couple of times. My wife is from a very Christian area of northern Mindanao. But uh, Mindanao had always been this sort of foreboding place in the Philippines. Up north, they're very cautious and always warning, you know, don't go there. It's very dangerous. It's um, trouble. There's wars and difficulties and and what have you. And I uh, had always had a mild interest. And when I was a PhD student, I had the really wonderful opportunity to work with a grant program uh, at Northern Illinois University with Dr. Sue Russell and Dr. Lena Ong. And it was a program that brought together youth from the Philippines that were Christian, Lumad, which are Highland Animists, and Muslims or Moros. And they brought these youth together and would uh, facilitate interethnic dialogue and peace studies. And we had the opportunity to host them at various times. And it had such an impact. Um, On the ways that I was thinking about the Philippines and the way I was thinking about colonialism and post-coloniality, the way I thought about concepts of national authenticity is configured and sort of articulated by various ethno-linguistic groups in the Philippines. And through the course of this grant work and with the help of some other uh, friends that I'd gotten to know – it it really suddenly became clear and I began to ask myself, why haven't I been doing Mindanao the entire time? I mean I have every connection in the world there. My wife is from there for heaven's sake. This is what I was meant to do. Why didn't I see this? And so um, as soon as I began to look into the history of the Moros, I was immediately hooked. I was immediately fascinated um, and began to dig deeper and deeper into the archival material and into the secondary literature and by that point, is a lot of academics know when when you find something like that, it almost begins to write itself. I mean, it's just sort of pulling this indefinite research thread, and I really found that to be the case uh, with this project. And it's it's one that, in some ways, even with the book, has not ended. Yeah, even close. Hmm.
0: Now, um, in I forget if it's the the introduction or somewhere in the beginning, you you talk about. Um, how much much of this work was developed during your dissertation work. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you made the progression from dissertation to book? Uh, a lot of listeners are probably also writing books or dissertations. Um, mm-hmm. So were you thinking of this as kind of a book – when you when you started to, or it started to write itself? Uh, or was there kind of uh, s- specific steps you needed to take to move from the dissertation to the book? Yeah, it was sort of a, an emerging project
1: that had its genesis in an article that I wrote. And that's really kind of the one that, that wrote itself. I had uh, been deeply, deeply influenced by subaltern studies and new imperial history um, and was really sort of thinking in these conceptual ways as grad students are uh, often found to be, you know, deeply mired in their theory. And when I came across these archival materials, uh, when I was a second year graduate student, I published an article with the Journal of Southeast Asian Studies, which was imperial historicism and American military rule in the Philippine Muslim South. And this article felt so right. It, it just felt like this is something that has an enormous amount of potential. And so with that article as a basis, I wrote a Fulbright proposal uh, that proposed to go and, and and really expound on these ideas about imperial historicism and American military rule. And so during the Fulbright, I was able to spend uh, quite a few months in the archives in Manila and quite a few months down in, in Mindanao and uh, within the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao and various places. And so when I got back, I was just simply buried in materials that I had found. And I put it together into the dissertation, and the dissertation went fairly well. I mean, it I, it wouldn't be true to say it simply wrote itself. <laughs> Dissertations are always more painful than that. And so I put it together, and I did when I put it together. I really thought this is something that that I want and that needs to be turned into a book at some point. And so after the dissertation defense, I went to work expanding various places. And one of the problems with the dissertation, and this is a problem I think a lot of doctoral students find as well, is that it was really opaque in places and um, deeply, deeply sort of. Mired in these abstract theoretical discussions of empire and of historicism and these kinds of things. And I think, in some ways, uh, if I were to be honest, I think the book is, it, it can be dense in places still. But one of the efforts was to try to get rid of some of that, try to replace it with a bit more of the narrative history, to try to expound it in various archival ways. To I added a little bit of uh, biographical information for some of the key players, uh, both on the American side and I, I think to a lesser extent on the moral side. And so really the the project of turning it into a book was taking it from this At the time of the dissertation, what I thought would be this really highly theoretical contribution to historiography and and theories of empire and turning it into something that actually had more to say about history and uh, flesh it out in a way that would be appealing, I think, to a larger audience than maybe 20 or 25 people around the world. So. Um, yeah, it was really a matter so I went to uh, uh, College Park and did some research. I went to Ann Arbor and did some research uh, to get a few more things that it needed and, and really tried to sacrifice uh, some things that were hard to get rid of but
0: then fill it up with uh, things that I think maybe rounded the book out a little bit better. Yeah, I think overall it's a, it's a really great contribution both from the theoretical perspective and the, the narrative historical uh, details you give us, so so I think you've you've struck a good balance. Um, well, thank you. Perhaps uh, we could set the stage a little bit before we delve into some of these really interesting things you're you're setting up here. Um, mm. Could you give us some of the narrative background that that might be important for listeners to know b- before we get into these explorations, uh, such as? Uh, you know what what do the Southern Philippine islands look like socially, politically, etc, in the mid to late nineteenth century when When does America enter the picture? What effects does that have Sure, yeah, absolutely, so the Philippines, of course, is
1: this incredibly heterogeneous archipelago composed of seventy one hundred islands with uh, numerous ethno linguistic groups, uh, multiplicity of religious tradition, and so it 's this very heterogeneous place uh the spanish had tried to congeal these islands into a a a recognizable uh, colony but there were really two groups that the spanish were never never able to conquer and that were the that that was the highland animists in luzon the the igorots and of course the moros down south and uh This creates a little bit of a divergence in national development in the Philippines, whereas most of the lowland Filipinos in Luzon and the Visayas were Christianized and increasingly their orientation became more and more Western. And it's often said, and I think truthfully, that the Philippines is the most westernized of all of the countries of Southeast Asia. And so their their orientation was more and more… It's focused on the West, focused on Europe, focused on Christianity and, and traditions that spring therefrom, whereas the Moros very much still oriented themselves to the east and to the south, out into what uh, we call – or um, James Warren calls the, uh, the Sulu Zone. And so when the Americans arrive in 1898, we really have this divergent group of people in the philippines and the americans were determined to to cobble it all together nevertheless they realized that this would be a problem with these divergent trajectories that had been taken and so what they decided to do was to formally colonize the philippines and after the philippine-american war was somewhat sorted out they decided that they would continue to rule what they called the the uncivilized or the savage tribes with the military while implementing in small measure civilian government throughout the rest of the islands. And so the Moros were under military government um, from 1899 to 1914. And the United States really felt that this was the best way um, to deal with these less civilized uh, peoples. Um, But this presents kind of an interesting alternative to the general narrative of of American colonialism in the Philippines. Because they were ruled by the U.S. military, it was much more of an autonomous colony, a much more autocratic colony. In essence, the American military could sort of dictate and reprimand or uh, remand policy uh, at their discretion. They could really create the colony that they wanted to create – and in some ways, this allowed uh, American imperialists American imperialists to experiment in eccentric ways, to, to try things that weren't available elsewhere in the islands. And so Moro province really becomes this sort of crucible for colonial experimentation. And uh, the American military was – despite the fact that we typically associate the American military with sort of more conservative colonial policies, they were very much progressives. I mean they're very excited to hasten this evolutionary process and to make a modern sort of bourgeois man out of these moros and they implement various policies to try to make that happen. And So that's really the subject matter of the book as it looks at those 14 years of American military rule – and the various ways that the military is really conducting an almost separate colonial experiment in Moro province than the rest of the United States in the islands at large.
0: Yeah. Um another thing that you uh you discuss uh in the book which uh, listeners might not be aware of is uh even among the Muslim population at the time there was a great diversity. Can you can you give us a little background on the different groups of Muslims that were there? Yeah, absolutely. They're uh just as in the rest of
1: the islands, the ethno linguistic groups are really staggering um, when you consider their breadth and depth across the places. And so uh, Mindanao was no different. Uh, despite the fact that they all proclaimed an adherence to Islam, there were a, a, a div- variety of uh, ethno-linguistic groups and the Americans as they began to get to know some of these uh, Moro groups some of these ethno-linguistic groups they really in a very classic sort of orientalist fashion characterized various traits and did ethnological studies that would determine what kind of policies and so uh, the Lanao Moros for example uh, the Maranao were viewed as very uh, industrious but also somewhat volatile and, and potentially violent. Uh, there were hot spots where they had the uh, – the, uh, in Sulu, uh, the Taosug, for example, could be somewhat violent, holo, these kinds of things. Uh, and so they really crafted their policies to conform with whatever ethnological views they'd created – of these various ethnolinguistic groups, even among the Moros. And so we do get this little bit of tension where the Americans are tempted at times to really characterize Moro province as the Muslim province. But at the same time, they have to take into account the variety of ethnolinguistic groups that are operating and often in alliance or in antagonism or antagonistic relationships with (laughs) one another. Um, And so it really is kind of a trick of their rule to try to sort this out to to crystallize it in a way that conforms with American policymaking methods.
0: Hmm. Now, one of the the key things you're trying to do here uh, is is give the morals a voice, I guess. Um, You explicitly say you're not writing an American history in the Philippines. You're not writing a nationalist history of of, of the Philippines – um, and you're really taking up this, this subaltern voice and, and trying to let it speak for itself. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your sources because these sources seem hard to get, and you, you talk specifically about the idea of the archive. And um, So perhaps are, are there more sources that we can access, or how did you go about doing that kind of things? And then the more... Um, I guess Western accessible sources, perhaps Mm. how do you read those against the grain in order to access the Moro's voice? Right. Yeah. So this is really the biggest challenge of the book.
1: Um, And you're absolutely right. I am by training and in practice a Southeast Asianist. That's that's all I do. So I am not – Uh, a historian of American empire. I'm not an Americanist by any means. Uh, I am a Southeast Asianist. And so for me, it was important to cast the book in that way, that this is Philippine history. So the book was meant to be Philippine history that is simply occurring during the time of American colonial occupation. Um, And by doing so, I I really tried to craft it in a way that the historiography, um, would be centered in telling this story of the Philippines and not a constituent part of the American empire. So that was one of the first uh, things that I did to the subaltern voice. This is really the challenge. Um, and it's been some legitimate criticism of the book is as well, where do we get these moral voices? And the simple fact is, at least to my knowledge, by and large, they, they don't exist in a, in a pure unadulterated form, the way that, You know, Ulysses S. Grant's diaries exist. Um, Now, occasionally we get actual moral words and we get moral voices, but they're really sparse and few and far between. And so my method in sort of coercing these voices out was really twofold. The first of which is I tried to bookend the study a little bit and let the study at least be informed by a little bit of participant observation research in the Philippines. So, to go to Moro Province, to go to Marawi, to go speak with individuals and, and simply ask, you know, what, what were your perceptions of the American colonial period? How is that remembered in popular memory? What does it mean? And so, in the introduction and then um, in the epilogue, I discuss quite a bit some of the early guidance that I received from key figures in Moro Province, where they sort of Indicated this this nostalgia in some sense uh, for the American military period, which was a much more hands off, a less social engineering a sort of um, episode in which uh, morals were were made in modernity and which they participated. They were. Various points in the book, we'll talk about later. But the Moros are really cast as these supermen, right? These these wonderful specimens of primal man, unadulterated, and the Moros love that, and they participated in that. And so, I uh, at least to sort of contextualize it, I I went right to the sources it exists today, and it was incredibly helpful. Uh, The second way that I tried to coerce it out is what I think uh, a lot of historians like myself have to do, and that is you have to go back to the colonial sources, which are indeed 99% of the time produced by the colonial power, and you have to really engage in some rigorous discourse analysis. We have to try to read between the lines and sort of tease out the ways in which uh, the subaltern is participating, collaborating, resisting, reappropriating, redefining, and a lot of this we have to do deductively. We have to look at what the Americans are attempting and and why they think this doesn't work or why they think it does work and how they correct their policies and how they adapt their policies and these kinds of things. And so from that, uh, we can sort of – deduce and piece together what the responses must have been um, from the subaltern. and I think in a lot of ways, once this practice gets going, it's, it's really quite revealing that by looking at the way that the Americans are able to change their policies, to change their discourse, to adapt what they're doing, it really kind of paints a very, very clear picture of what the Moros are doing on the other side, either collaboratively or or how they're resisting. Now, the hard part and admittedly the difficult part about this is it is not empirical gold, right? It's not the kind of thing you can look at and say, yeah, that's incredibly explicit and it is incredibly apparent and this is something that we can just put on the paper and kind of let it speak for itself. Um, That's just – not the way that it it can be done, at least in my experience, it takes quite a bit of work on the part of the historian to piece together this story by looking at, in essence, it's consequences in official discourse, right? Or the the adaptations that are shown. And uh, it's, you know, it's challenging at times. It's uh, incredibly rewarding at times, but if it, I think in some ways, if it's not done this, this way, then we lose something. We, we do lose this subaltern voice. We lose this examination of what lurks in the shadows and what lurks just beyond the discourse and what's influencing uh, the colony as it's reported and portrayed in the official documents. And I think that um, more and more, this is, this is what we're going to see. I mean, more and more, this is what we are seeing. I think is that, Historical actors, they, they have something to say, and, and, and what they have to say is often um, through the reactions of others. And it's a little bit of a deductive game, but I, th- I think in the end can be rewarding.
0: Yeah, there are definitely some some really beautiful scenes you've set, and uh, I, I think a lot of it does come through uh, or rise above those kind of more official – uh, imperial discourses. So you, you've done a very good job in in, in my reading. Well, thank you. Um, one of the the kind of underlying uh, theoretical structures you're using in this book is this idea of imperial historicism, um, mm. which we could maybe interpret as an ideological guide for structuring attitudes and rationales and actions um so h- how does how does imperial historicism function in your book? How did colonial discourses shape Muslim interpretations of their own modernity mm. good yeah, so this is uh what I envisioned as being the major theoretical
1: um contribution of the book and uh, as I said at the beginning I was, I was really deeply influenced by this new imperial history movement that began in the late '90s and has carried on you know until now and I uh, was deeply influenced by the thinking of Stoller and Cooper and their book Tensions of Empire and Bernard Cohn and Depest Chakrabarty and Subaltern School and these kinds of things and so I, w- I was really sort of intrigued. By the ways that discourse is neither inherent nor stable, and I, I really bought deeply into this idea that colonialism was not hegemonic by any means, and that it was a constant negotiation, it was malleable, and it was it was uh, unstable and so I felt that in reading a lot of colonial histories of the Philippines race as a category analysis as a category of analysis was in some ways a default position that when any colonial policy was examined and uh, the actions of the americans and these kinds of things it was very easy to say okay well these are formations of race or these are articula- articulations of race these are evolutions of american racial discourse after the civil war these are uh, you know embodiments of american racial thinking these kinds of things but but i i was never fully satisfied by that because i always felt that the concept of race and race making was well as i said inherently unstable it, it was inherently empty and inherently being remade all the time and uh, i think being informed repeatedly by what was occurring in the colonies and I, I was a big fan and still am a big fan of uh, Paul Kramer's book, Blood of Government, where he talks about the, the policies and, and methods of race making in the Philippines and his book was deeply influential in the sense that it really caused me to think about what is at the heart of American imperial ideology. What, what is really making this happen? And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, I I found in my own personal research and not only in this book but in other pieces I've published that race plays a part but race seems to be this ancillary discourse to a more deep-seated notion of evolutionary disparity that in, in a very real way, the Americans found themselves at a different place in time and this different place in time allowed them to look at the, the Filipinos and not just them but you know people all over the world with a sort of omniscience where they could deduce their place in evolutionary time and by so doing could successfully assess them prognosticate their future give a comprehensive rendering of their past And as I dug deeper and deeper into this, I found that this is everywhere. Everything I was reading, I found this everywhere. These constant allusions to time and these constant um, um, sort of discourses that allowed them to omnisciently deduce and to examine their colonial subjects. And as I got deeper into this, I thought to myself, you know what? This actually represents maybe a small amendment to new imperial history because – the work that really comes out after Stoller and Cooper's landmark uh, study is that imperial discourse is in some ways non-existent. And, and if, it, it, if it is existent, it's, it's chaotic and it's constantly changing and it's unstable because whatever was conceived in the metropole – was negotiated there in and of itself and it changed when they got on the boat and it changed as they crossed the Pacific and it changed in each and every interaction in the periphery or in the colony because everything was a negotiation. But I find that this notion of imperial historicism was something that is conceived in the metropole and shows remarkable continuity – as it crosses the ocean, as it gets into the colony. And I, and what I try to demonstrate in the book is no matter what disrupture occurs, no matter what problem that they find either ideologically or practically in the application of policy, these disruptures are more times than not medicated with this discourse of asymmetry of temporal existence, that it can all be explained away in terms of a relative evolutionary lag. And to me, this was a this was a revolution. This, to me, this was really interesting. Where I thought, no, 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 I think I have isolated an imperial discourse that is not subject to the same kinds of um, radical remakings. Right to the, to the inherent instability that we see when we get to discourses of race and these other things, and so. In the book, what I try to demonstrate is that no matter what the Americans encounter, imperial historicism is informing their ideas and their actions in virtually every encounter. Hmm. Um, and to me, I, I just – I, I thought it was really kind of exciting to see something when historians look across a vast array of sources and they can see something that occurs again and again and again and again that maybe hasn't received a tremendous amount of study. Um, and get excited about that so I, I that's really what I was hoping would be the major theoretical contribution of the book
0: yeah, thank you and thank you for kind of taking the time to to flesh that out because I think that was for my reading one of the the key things that I think listeners will will definitely benefit from and I hope they they do explore your book uh for this reason now um, in the first chapter you you are looking at um constructions of identity and specifically, uh, how, how were Filipino Muslims constructed in the American imagination and what types of processes helped create this image?
1: Yeah. So the, the Americans were very excited when they got to, uh, Mindanao because they felt that they had these, uh, now, the Muslims weren't necessarily a clean slate, but they had a primal quality to them that the the Americans felt lacked in other places. So they looked at the thorough Christianization and colonization of lowland Filipinos. And in many ways, the Americans sort of lamented the fact that uh, in their eyes, oh, no, the Spanish have sort of ruined – these people, right? They, they've so thoroughly colonized them that they've emasculated them and that they've turned them into these overly parochial devotees of an archaic form of Iberian Catholicism and, oh, they just sort of lamented the fact that, you know, we just have to they've been ruined. It's, it's going to be hard to make modern men. Whereas the Moros, the American military at least, was very excited because they felt that here we have a population that has never been conquered. And even the American military, I don't, I don't think they would go so far as to say that they conquered them. They just, you know, they worked out this sort of um, accommodation, this this um, uh, form of submission, but without conquering them in a fundamental psychological sense. And so they felt this moral really represents this visceral masculinity, this this primal man that is able to, act masculine in a way that the, I think the Americans would say, even we can't anymore, you know, we, we're sort of over civilized now. We've, we're not allowed to be violent and we're not allowed to be, um, sort of primitive or primal in any ways. We're alienated from the various mechanisms of our own survival. You know, we don't make our own shoes we don't grow our own food. We don't do any of these things, but these moros inhabit very much this sort of rugged individual masculine ethic that I think the the Americans saw among themselves and the frontiersmen that made the country. And so the military is incredibly excited about this. And so they go about really constructing the moral first and foremost as this ideal specimen of primitive primal – masculine man. So he has all of the requisite building materials to make the ideal modern man. He just needs to be you know, rounded out and, and civilized in certain ways. He needs to be domesticated in a sense. But the military was uh, always cautious not to uh, really promote ideas of a, of a conquered people in any way. There are some discussions with uh, the American military I have in there where they said, look, we – we really messed up with the native americans we we pursued policies that destroyed their culture and and destroyed their inherent primal masculinities and and we don't want to repeat those mistakes here we want to make sure that we preserve that in a certain sense and they go through all these efforts to do it but these constructions of the moro were cultural uh they were physical there's uh, i talk about in the book uh, some of these reports on the moros where They're essentially made into these physical supermen where they're saying, oh, yeah, they they have well-defined calves and muscular bodies and they run and they swim like fish and they can climb trees and they fall out of those trees and they're not hurt And their feet. They can run on anything and you get the feeling that, oh my gosh, these moros are – apparently they could drink seawater, right? They're just completely indestructible and so uh, as you can imagine – in some ways, there's a there's a great incentive for the Moros to collaborate on this project, uh, with the Americans coming and telling them how wonderful they are, and how masculine they are, and how uh, fearless they are to face down American guns. Even at, at, at points when the Americans had to apply, in, in their minds, of course, uh, episodes of colonial discipline, the Moros took. With a certain masculine stoicism, and so the Americans were very, very inspired by this, and they wanted to keep uh, th- this discourse of masculinity alive and sort of imbibe in it vicariously and recall nostalgically the days of the American frontier. Uh, and so, in some ways, it was this sort of, you know, episode of we call it sort of colonial narcissism, right? And it's all about all about them, <laughs> of course, but. Uh, very important, I think, to the psyche of these these American military colonists.
0: Yeah. yeah um, an, another part of this uh, was kind of some of the realities of uh, moral society that didn't align with these understandings or representations. Um, and one of these, uh, which you would uh, – Assume is a very uh, important part of their identity is this I- idea of their relationship to Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of complicates this American civilizing project. <laughs> um, so, could you kind of outline what what's going on here, what's at stake, and 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 how is this disrupting American representations of the Moros? Right. So
1: the Americans really love this idea of the primal moral, right, the savage moral. Uh, but of course that wasn't the case. These Moros are incredibly cosmopolitan. They have exposure to uh, most of the uh, Southeast Asian trading world. They are active participants in this – in the world of Islam and and uh, have frequent contacts with Arabs and with South Asians. And so the problem is that disrupts a little bit of the narrative and so the Americans really go on this – campaign to try to discredit the Moros as Muslims. They really pursue this thin and flaking glaze theory where they try to highlight all of the animistic qualities, all of the religious corruptions of Islam and they try to to show that the Moros really, number one, they don't understand the religion and its reality and how it's practiced and they don't follow its precepts. Um, and number two, what, what they do understand of it, they've, they've horribly, horribly corrupted by infusing it with a variety of animistic uh, beliefs and, and these kinds of things. And so uh, there's a huge effort on the part of the Americans to really discredit them as Muslims, uh, to show them as uh, sort of – I don't know if a, apostate would be the right word, but, but definitely sort of divergent from the
0: practicing Ummah of, of Muslims around the world. The other part of uh, Moro society uh, that really kind of threw a wrench in this whole procedure was uh, the role of slavery. Right. Um, so could could you talk about what the role of slavery was in Moro society and perhaps how ideas about slavery aligned with American historical realities, which uh, were not exactly attuned to each other um, and then how did how do colonial regimes respond to this? Right. So they really
1: created a problem for themselves. Uh, One of the things that made the Americans most excited about the Moros was the fact that they had slaves. So uh, right at the outset of the uh, acquisition of the Philippines, there are newspapers across the United States that are emblazoned with headlines. uh, A second emancipation proclamation to be issued by President McKinley. We're going to engage in the work of of the great emancipator. We're going to liberate these slaves. This is sort of Again, this very exciting recapitulation of American history that they're looking at. and They're very excited to be part of a new generation that's going to pursue this. And so they begin to go to Moral Province and and find out what exactly is going on. How do we liberate? It's it's interesting to mention though and I should mention that as excited as these very socially minded um, early 20th century – For the most part, very New England ish bourgeois members of the colonial regime, how they were taking pride in their social consciousness and and wanting to rid the world of the evil of slavery. There was a certain strain of American society that was oddly and uncomfortably nostalgic for the days of slavery. So uh, we talk about this later, but a, a On is uh, the Moro experience at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. And uh, one of the most sort of disturbing things I've come across there is that the Moros at the fair had uh, brought their entourage with them, which included servants and Clients and these kinds of things that Americans perceived as slavery and so some of the headlines are very excited where they say, oh, Moros are bringing slaves and for the first time in a generation, Americans are going to be able to witness a human being in bondage uh, the way that people used to (laughs) be in bondage in the United States and so there was this strange – nostalgia combined with a crusading ethic uh, to take this on. But it it immediately becomes a problem because when the Americans get there, they realize that they're making a mistake. I mean in classic sort of Bernard Cohn fashion, uh, uh, American policy in the Philippines was predicated upon the assumption of translation, that everything we see should be able to be translated linguistically, culturally, historically into something that we imminently recognize. And so, when the Americans actually get down and start to make these ethnological studies of moral society, they 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 go, well, um, I I don't know what to make of this. Right, <laughs> this is a little bit uncomfortable because what we're perceiving as moral slavery is incredibly more humane than um, chattel slavery as it was practiced in the American South. I mean, uh, the the moral circumstances of servitude were much more predicated upon uh, communal values of patron clientism, of um, patronage for those in the community that were loosely related um, and in many cases uh, individuals actively sought out patrons as a way to, to climb socially within the society. And So the Americans are finding that the slaves aren't mistreated. The slaves have a great deal of uh, social mobility. Uh, they have a great deal of economic freedom. Uh, the, uh, this doesn't look anything like our slavery, and it kind of dis- it kind of unsettled them because American slavery was so much worse, so much more inhumane uh, compared to the Moros. That after a while, the Americans are really forced to sort of moderate their discourse. Um, And in a very uh, silent way, they're forced to retreat from all of this excitement at the outset where they begin to – and again, with the the theoretical thrust of the book, the Americans have to say, well, this is not – This doesn't resemble American practices of of pre-Civil War slavery. Um, This is much more of a sort of medieval form of vassalage that's predicated upon allegiance to a chieftain. And as a matter of fact, it's so funny how specific they get. Uh, At one point, they look at the servitude and they say, yeah, this really resembles what we might see in England under the Stuarts. We can get that specific with it. And so they have to kind of. They really have to back off of of this whole endeavor, but again, the disruption is medicated by imperial historicism. So the Americans don't have to outright say, you know, oh, we're completely wrong. They just simply have to say, okay, well, we have to locate it in a recognizable history here. And so, rather than liberating slaves in the way that you know may have been done. At various uh, points in American history, we have to cr- construct uh, imperial policies that account for it in much more of a medieval practice of vassalage and, and these kinds of things. And so, it was kind of interesting to watch them contort into these various ways to account for what they're seeing. But, I, but I, you know, to, to be fair to the Americans, one thing about them is they are sort of remarkably candid with themselves and sort of agile in their discourse. Um, They're not ones to kind of just dig in and say, "Okay, well, this is what we see and this is what it will be by gosh from now to the end of time. The Americans, when something is disrupted, they're very candid about it. They're very honest about it. Say, "Okay, well, this doesn't seem to be the case. And, And they adapt their discourse and their policies in a way that accounts for it. But in a way that's still, again, imminently recognizable to them within their own cultural and historical traditions. In this case, um, hi- imperial historicism, just, just sort of relocating
0: them <clears throat> in a different period in recognizable time. Now, moving past some of these uh, these bumps in the road, uh, for, for many in the colonial regime, uh, capitalism was uh, a route to modernity. So... Uh, how, how was capitalism viewed as a means of civilizing and I guess from the perspective of American imperialists, how did Moreau's become modern through new market economies? Yeah, so this was
1: the panacea. This was going to solve all their problems because in the end, the Americans really felt that they were there not so much to deduce you know it wasn't a project overwhelmingly predicated on deducing what the morals were or where they came from but the policy is hasten them into modernity as quickly as possible and so the american military men looked at the rest of the colony and they said yes there's a great deal of effort being put into participatory government into creating sort of the institutions and structures and mechanisms of a democratic state and But down here in Moro province, we figured it out and the key in the minds of the American military was capitalism, right? Market systems. Now on the one hand, the Americans believed that the Moros were absolutely natural capitalists. Um, They put a great deal of time and effort into examining their economic behaviors and they found a couple of things or at least they recorded a couple of things. And that was number one, that the Moros are absolutely industrious. They're hard workers. They're money-minded. They are – if there's an opportunity to to earn money through labor, they are more and more than willing to do it, and they actually sort of jab the rest of the colony in uncomfortable ways, uh, trying to construct the lowland Christian Filipino as being indolent and uh, you know unindustrious and these kinds of things, which. Just, certainly was not true uh, uniformly and uh, trying to use that as a foil against this industriousness of this frontiersman-like moral. Uh, the second thing that they found is that the morals are incredibly entrepreneurial, that they're constantly thinking of new ways to um, form businesses and to access markets and they're very eager to take on new technologies and new methods. and they're very practical in their approach and anything that will enhance their productivity, they're more than willing to adopt. And So the Americans felt this is very natural, right? They're already there. They're very much like us is what the Americans were thinking uh, in the military. And So the Americans felt all we need to do is we need to facilitate this. We need to nurture this as much as possible. And So they came up with a number of policies that they thought – uh, would help, uh, the most important of which was the development of moral markets. Uh, and these were markets that were created all over uh, Moro province. They were designed specifically to provide um, well-regulated, open, free trade sites where the Moros, regardless of rank, regardless of ethno-linguistic identity, regardless of location, could bring whatever they wanted to market and could sell it in a very – free trade kind of atmosphere. Um, and the Americans, uh, once they began to implement these policies, found that the Moros responded incredibly enthusiastically, and began to bring all kinds of things. Production increased. They were beginning to engage in handicraft and agricultural pursuits, and uh, all kinds of things, and began to participate in these markets. And so this got the Americans very excited, and they said, "Okay, well, now what we need to do is we need to introduce them into the world of emerging technology." And so they held agricultural fairs and conventions and. And public lectures and a variety of introduced new technologies and metalwork and animal husbandry and fertilizer uh, and a variety of things to enhance their production. Uh, the Americans were also uh, – one of the aspects of uh, capitalism that they liked the best was the competitiveness of it. Now, the Americans were firm believers in this sort of competitive synthesis that innovation and production is the result of competition – or prizes, you know, whether that prize be profit or, or recognition or whatever. And so uh, one of the things I found most interesting that the Americans tried to implement was the concept of the old county fair, right where you could bring livestock, you could show your livestock, you could re- receive prizes from the livestock, you could sell the livestock, uh, they promoted baseball teams, they promoted um, any kind of competitive atmosphere. And what really elated uh, the Americans was that uh, the Moros were willing and happy participants, that they didn't have to sort of coerce them into doing this and explain it to them and change their culture. Uh, The Americans found that the Moros intuitively grasped all this, that they were eager participants, that they took this in new directions, and the moral markets very soon were being run by Moros and regulated by Moros and – the American military felt that this is this is it. This, this will lead to everything. This will lead to an equaling out of the class system. It will eventually lead to the institutions of civil society. This is the key to their evolution. Um, and so really the main tutelary thrust of American military colonialism in Mindanao was to create this capitalist ethic, this competitive ethic that they felt would – essentially solve all other uh, problems on their way to uh, sort of technical modernity and to, to, to the world of the modern.
0: Mm. Now, there's a, there's a whole lot more to the book, which we, we won't be able to get to. But um, one thing I, I did want to ask you about was um, in the epilogue, you talk about uh, modern uh, Moro identity. Mm-hmm. So um, can you can you give us a little bit uh, a perspective on, on how this history is viewed by Filipino Muslims today?
1: Yeah, well, this was – this is always the temptation with a book like this and one of the things that I wanted to try to avoid that um, – well, I, I really felt I, – I don't want my book to do is a lot of times – Books on the southern Philippines are written as sort of strict teleologies of the current circumstances of morals in relation to the Philippine state. So in other words, OK, here's a conflict. Uh, the conflict is kind of uh, edgy. It's, it's current. So let's run out and explain it backwards. And I, I, I really didn't want this book to do that in, in any way. Nevertheless… <coughs> it is difficult to, to, to write a book on the history of the morals and not include some of the very urgent contemporary matters. And so what I tried to do in the epilogue is I tried to frame it in the sense of the ideological sort of identity roots, I think, that play a part in some of the current conflicts. And, and that really is that the morals I think deep down are, are very offended by the nationalist project and its constructions of an authentic nationality. Uh, so I think that a, a lot of times throughout the history, uh, particularly post-war, there's been this sense among the Philippine state and in, among some decision makers and perhaps the population at large when they look at the Moros and they're sort of asking, why, why don't you just get with the program, right? Why don't you just get with the program of – the nation state uh, we 're all Filipinos now uh, and uh, w- why the separatism right why why this this urge to remain so distinctly and, and fiercely independent and I think from a moral perspective the the point I tried to raise is that the, the morals sort of gasp at this concept of national authenticity. And say, what what are you talking about? We are the original Filipinos, right? I mean, we are the only ones that haven't been conquered repeatedly. So the Spanish came and there was sort of a mass conversion to Catholicism. The Americans came and there was sort of a mass conversion to uh, American patterns of consumption and popular culture. And, you know, the old saying goes that 330 years in a convent, 50 years in Hollywood, you know, that kind of thing. and even under American rule, which we assented to at least in – or we you know, conceded in a certain sense, we made every effort to retain our original identity. And the, We don't have time to talk about it, but the, the Americans never really eradicate moral servitude. They never really eradicate polygamy. They never eradicate Islam. And so I think in some ways the Moros are saying we're we're the authentic ones, OK? Even our national hero, Lapu-Lapu, uh, is – Muslim, you know, and that's disputed in various places, but you, you keep wanting us to be part of this nationalist project when we are the originals, right? We are the authentic ones. And so, in some ways, I think the Filipino Muslims, the, the Moros, felt very, very betrayed in 1914 when American military rule ended and Moro province was folded over into the the Philippine colony at large, and was folded over into civilian government, and the Moros felt that this this is the beginning of the end. I mean, we're going to be overrun, which subsequently turned out to be true. We're going to be overrun by a Filipino Christian majority. We're going to be marginalized, um, ancestral lands taken away, and all which, of course, has happened. And in that sense, we're we're. We're under constant threat of annihilation, and so even up into the 1940s, uh, there are prominent datu's among the Moros that are writing these passionate letters to FDR, saying, "Please, you know, keep us separate. Uh, figure out some way in which we can administer our own affairs. Please keep us out of the Philippine majority at large, and um, let us continue in our sort of, I, you know, I." I Don't want to put words in their mouth, but in our sort of authentic ways, right? And so the conflict today, I think, in many ways, echoes the Moros' ascent into this modern project of the nation state that under the American military they seem to remember very fondly. You know, I say that. With some you know major caveats, there were some incredibly violent engagements. I, I published a piece on Badaho, which was a massacre of Muslims in an extinct volcano, and some very sharp conflicts. But I think when they look back, they say, "Look, the American military, you know where we may have had troubles at the very least sort of respected the moroness, right that they looked at our culture, they looked at our Our civilization, they looked even at our bodies and they said, look, there's something here worth preserving. There is something here that is compatible with modernity, something that should be preserved, something that should be encouraged. And I think that once they were turned over to the colony in in 1914 and subsequently to the project of the nation state in the Philippines, that they feel that that same – respect has not been extended, that that same idea of the distinctness and the potential of the Moro hasn't been perpetuated under those circumstances. And, you know, it, it – I think in some ways, at least at an ideological level, is still at the heart of a lot of the difficulties that are occurring um, with various attempts at autonomy and, and separatism and – efforts to reclaim ancestral land and migration and plebiscides and you know the whole history of it. That, that in some ways this notion of, of the authenticity that it was allowed to flourish, that was recognized under the American military is something that they haven't seen since
0: well Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking to you about your book. Uh, I hope people will go out and get it uh, because I think it will benefit a lot of people in Islamic studies and beyond. Before I let you go, though, uh, I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit more about some of these really interesting projects you're working on, things you might have coming out soon or things you're thinking about more long term.
1: Yeah, definitely. I um, Well, I've gotten really interested in um, the, uh, the whole concept of colonial exposition, right? So all of this knowledge that I've been looking at uh, in terms of how the Americans constructed Moros and how they're creating identities and handling disruptures in the narrative and these kinds of things, I I found fascinating. Uh, But I'm also interested in, I guess, classic new imperial fashion on on the ways that these ideas in the periphery are having a deep influence on the metropole. And so this idea of colonial exposition has really caught my interest. I just – Submitted an article that looked at the first display of Filipinos in the United States, which interestingly enough occurred in Omaha in 1899 at the Greater America Exposition. Hmm. And uh, the piece looks at the ways that Filipinos are encountered, but in 1899, it's so fresh, it's so new that the Americans don't really have any ideas. They don't. They don't have a discourse to draw upon, and so when they look at the Filipinos, they don't really find them exotic or strange. They just kind of look at them and say, "Huh, they're they're neat." And uh, they don't. Uh, <laughs> there's no uh, no major knowledge breakthrough. There's no you know and it's interesting because when you contrast that with what happens later in 1904 there is a very firm discourse in place not only for Filipinos but you know getting even into the micro where they look at the Igorot headhunting dog eaters which were the sensation of the of the 1904 world's fair and the next book project that i'm currently working on is the Moro experience in, in 1904 and the moros very much are Presented in the ways that the Americans and the Moros collaboratively had constructed themselves in the province as being sort of these frontiersmen, uh, being violent but also being very, very um, um, honorable in their violence. Um, But it's interesting because the the Americans considered the Moro experience at the fair to be a failure. Uh, they were really disappointed with gate receipts and with the way the Americans perceived them, and uh, they felt that the the public had missed out on an opportunity to see the real potential of tutelary colonialism. And they were only interested in sort of the sensational aspects of the Igorots. And so the project's exploring why the Americans were so disappointed. Uh, but this one's, I feel that I'm able to actually get a little bit more of the uh, the subaltern voice actually there's there's quite a bit of moral actual moral voice that i'm coming across in this 1904 world's fair and so it's interesting to see how they view the metropole how they view this as an opportunity to present themselves and and pursue their own
0: particular interests and so i'm i'm really excited about it uh, as it's going forward yeah it sounds really interesting uh, perhaps we can uh, talk again when when that comes out Oh, I would love it. I would love to. Well, thanks again, Mike. And uh, again, it was a pleasure. You wrote a great book. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I
1: I really enjoyed it.
0: That was my conversation with Michael Hawkins about his great new book, Making Moros, Imperial Historicism and American Military Rule in the Philippines Muslim South, published with Northern Illinois University Press in 2012. Thanks for all your support and listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.